It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KOMA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hello, friends. Welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. It's a disease without a cure, it can't be prevented or even slowed to any significant degree Alzheimer's or dementia. There is good news, though. There has been some progress in helping dementia patients live their best life. Tonight on our program, we'll visit with a nationally recognized expert on Alzheimer's and dementia care. We'll also share how you can learn firsthand these valuable tips for caring for patients suffering from memory loss. First, the latest on COVID-19, and if we're seeing continued progress in turning back the virus, we're happy to join by Heather Hill, the Communicable Disease Program Manager with the Benton Franklin Health District. And Heather, when we last spoke, I know you had indicated we had seen a slight uptick in cases largely due to the Labor Day holiday. But are we making uh, back to some, I guess, steady uh, data that shows that uh, we're, we're stabilizing? Yeah, that's actually what we are beginning to notice, Jim. We did have that little bit of a increase in activity after Labor Day plus school getting started, but we're seeing that the data for Benton County remains pretty stable where it's been for the last you know, couple of weeks. And Franklin County actually had a slight decrease. Um, so that is really good information. You know, community transmission is pretty low, but I, you know, I don't want people to get the feeling that COVID has gone away because it certainly hasn't. Um, We're still seeing, like last week, we had two deaths last week, so we're still seeing between two and four deaths per week in Benton and Franklin County alone. So unfortunately, the virus is still out there. It's still circulating. People are still getting sick. They are dying. But we are, thank goodness, nowhere like we have been at other times over the last two and a half years, and certainly not where we were just this past January. You know, much has been made of a comment that President Biden made uh, that the pandemic is over. And I know I I don't want to get too political here, but I know the real story seems to be what we've been trying to address the past few months on this program. And it's a word you taught me that endemic, meaning that COVID is improving, but in, in some fashion will probably always be with us. Right, and it's it's that word endemic versus pandemic that can be a little bit confusing for people, particularly people who don't live in the disease world like like us in public health do. And, and we are waiting for us to reach that endemic state where this is the baseline normal for us. This is the disease rate we would expect to see of any disease. And then we watch that data very, very carefully. And if we start to see a sudden uptick, that tells public health we need to start looking at why is that happening and what do we need to do to message our community so that we can improve the statistics. Because our job is to help give that information to the community that they need to keep themselves as safe and healthy as possible. And is and is that the point, really, in what public health is all about, that, you know, it, it is to provide a consistent voice, a regular voice, and and be there with the, the data and, and provide the context when it's necessary, regardless of what the data show? Right. And, and regardless of, you know, again, the disease, what the infection is, our job is is to look at it, you know, through the eyes of our epidemiologists, our people, our staff who 
are specialists in looking at data, interpreting data, and helping us um, give that message to our community and actually letting us know when we're starting to see something that has us concerned in the data, and then we get together and come up with the mitigation strategies. Again, whether it be COVID, uh, influenza, norovirus, that's our job in public health is, is to message the community with the information they need so they can live their best health. And, and you touched on it in your opening opening response, and that's that thankfully that the numbers are, you know, comparatively to what nine months ago, comparatively to a year ago or two years ago, we are in a very good position. But I know that the the boosters, this booster has come back out, and and again, just remind our listeners what they should be doing if they are eligible and and how to go about doing that. Right. We certainly encourage people, if they haven't already gotten their primary series of the vaccine, get that on board. And if they're eligible for the bivalent booster, that is what we're going to probably be seeing for the years to come is is that bivalent booster or whatever next variant comes our way, having a vaccine that will match what is circulating to, again, give us the best protection, just like we do with flu vaccine every year. It's developed every year to match what is suspected to be the most problematic strains that will be hitting, you know, our side of the world. And like I've said, same thing holds true with COVID. And and so is the is the advice on this is to get it now as soon as you're eligible? We had addressed this, I know, as soon as the this booster became available, but some people were trying to gauge when they should get it so to time their maximum effectiveness. But what's public health's advice on that? You know, our message is get it as soon as possible because sometimes you can't really predict when you're going to get exposed to influenza or COVID. Um, get it on board. Get your immunity um, perked up again because we know that the vaccine wanes, our protection from the vaccine wanes, our protection from actually catching the disease wanes. And so we need to get that vaccine on board to just wake up our immune system to give us the best protection possible. Do you remember what you were doing on February 29th, 2020? Because as I'm reading some information, that is when the emergency proclamation went into effect in the state of Washington relative to the pandemic, but I know uh, it's now planning to come to an end at the end of October. What does that mean? Yeah, I I remember vividly <laughs> uh, February 29. Um, it was quite a day here at the health district. And um, when we look back at February, February 29 and think, wow, we have come so far with this and facing, um, you know, exactly what does ending the emergency proclamation mean for Washington state. And I think it's important for people to, again, realize that there's a, a lot of things that won't be mandatory anymore. But the fact of the matter is COVID is still here. It hasn't gone away. Um, a lot of the funding to help um, with the activities necessary to do our public health measures will be gone. Um, but the vaccine requirements for the school and healthcare workers will be lifted. I, th- I think it's important to understand, though, that the face covering mandates that are required in long-term care and healthcare facilities, they actually came from the Department of Health. 
So until Department of Health makes a change on that, that will still be in effect. And that's an important consideration when you're going to visit your loved ones in long-term care facilities, that we still need to do whatever we can to protect those vulnerable people. Because when we look at the outbreaks we're having, yes, our, our case rates are going down, but we are still seeing outbreaks in long-term care. We had six in August. We're following 12 so far this month. Um, schools, we're starting to see outbreaks in the school and child care environment where we have four in the schools right now. And we're watching 15 potential outbreaks as we get more data in. So again, the emergency proclamation will end, but COVID infection in our community hasn't ended. And, and can you please explain what, what an outbreak is defined as? Well, there are different um, definitions depending on the disease, the situation, but what we look for when we talk about an outbreak, say in a school setting, is are we able to link a cluster of people who happen to share an environment and we look at the classroom and if we see kids and teachers who are all infected at almost the same time or within days of each other we start looking to where did it come from did they have exposures outside the classroom was it just coincidental can we through again that epidemiological lens look and make our best guess as to whether the transmission happened in the classroom or out of the classroom. And it's just exactly what we do, whether it be an outbreak in a long-term care facility of COVID or norovirus or flu, we're looking to see, did something happen in that closed environment to cause an outbreak where a number of people became ill or was it something that happened externally? If it happened internally, then we really help that school, that facility, uh, look through their mitigation strategies to see what needs to maybe be changed to help improve the health outcome for that group of people. And when you're talking about the term outbreak, is there a minimum number that classifies as an outbreak? You know, again, it all depends on the disease. Um, if you're talking about a disease that we never see, one case could be considered an outbreak. But when we're talking COVID, we're looking for a small group of people in an environment that they're linked together. And then that's what triggers us to look for other cases. And did they catch it externally? Did they transmit it within that group? And it could be as many as two to three people triggering us to say there's a problem here. And finally, just you touched on this proclamation ending on October 31st. Many of the restrictions have already been lifted as far as that affect folks' lifestyle. And you touched on in the healthcare setting and the long-term care setting, masks will still be required. So is that pretty much it relative to the restrictions? And, and some of these might be, you know, you may not see, you may not see uh, funded COVID testing continuing or those kinds of things after October 30th. Right. At, at this point in time, we're not hearing that the testing or the vaccinations will be going away you know, free to the public. At some point in time, we know that the vaccines will probably end up 
not being free anymore. We've heard that that is potentially coming in the not too distant future. So again, that's a good reason to go ahead and get your vaccine now when we know it can be offered to you free because at some point in time, just like with flu vaccines, it may not be offered free. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. As always, thanks so much for your time. For more information on COVID-19 and other important public health topics, please visit the Health District's website at bfhd.wa.gov. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac On Call presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And the COVID pandemic has taken a toll on so many of our lives. People of all ages. It's been especially impactful on the elderly and people suffering from Alzheimer's disease or other dementia. This fall, a nationally recognized expert in dementia and memory care will be in the Tri-Cities for a free day-long workshop as part of the 11th annual Cadillac Caregiver Conference. David Troxell is the co-author of the Best Friends Approach to Alzheimer's Care, instructing families and caregivers about effective approaches to helping people impacted with memory loss. And David has decades of experience in this field, and we're fortunate to have him join us today from Sacramento, California, to talk about this oh-so-important topic. And David, first, thanks for taking the time to be with us. And I I guess it comes on a what we call World Alzheimer's Day, of all things. So timely. I know, Jim. I, we, we could not have planned this any better. <laughs> um, actually, today is the International World Alzheimer's Day. And it's, it's not celebrated, so to speak, as much in the U.S. as it is around the world. But it's, it's very significant because Alzheimer's disease, of course, is not just the United States issue. It impacts people all over the world. And there's a terrific organization called Alzheimer's Disease International. And if your listeners Google them, Alzheimer's Disease International in London, you can actually download this year's report, which is over 400 pages, dozens of amazing articles and essays, all about what happens after the diagnosis, life after the diagnosis. Very, very helpful. And where are we with it uh, at this time? How did, I guess maybe an initial one to tie to the issue of the world is COVID, but how did, how can we tell if how COVID impacted Alzheimer's and dementia and memory loss? Sure. Well, some of your listeners might be aware of a, of a weekly Dow Jones publication called Barron's Magazine about the stock market and investment and very influential magazine. Uh, And they had a cover story, I think, about seven months ago that said Alzheimer's disease, the other pandemic. So it is important to recognize that, you know, before COVID hit, Alzheimer's disease was, of course, an enormous and remains an enormous public health challenge. Sadly, as you sort of, you know, set up in your your introduction, COVID has been very devastating to people living with Alzheimer's. Uh, We anticipated that last year about 50,000 people with Alzheimer's died who wouldn't have died otherwise without the pandemic. And it wasn't just the COVID, Jim. It was loneliness and isolation, which I think really does play a a terrible role um, in in losing so many people who are frail elders. You know, when we talk about the the aging of our population, and that seems to, to illustrate so many of the health challenges that our society faces just because the largest segment of the population is the older older population which obviously needs 
more healthcare services. And and is that why the incidence of Alzheimer's and dementia and memory loss has increased combined, I guess, with the fact that people are living longer? I, I think you actually <clears throat> nailed it, Jim. That's correct. I mean, uh, you know, our, we still have this enormous age wave in the United States and many Western countries around the world, many countries around the world. And so Alzheimer's disease is exploding in numbers. We do think, interestingly enough, that even though the raw number is going up, the actual percentages may be declining slightly with improvements in public health and education. There's been a lot of research in recent years about things that might actually delay the onset of Alzheimer's or help prevent it, you know, childhood education, uh, good heart health, things like this. So as our world gets a bit healthier, you know, tobacco use going down and heart disease under control, uh, we actually are seeing a tiny drop in our, in our percentages of people who actually get Alzheimer's, but the raw, nom- the raw number is, is still rather huge. What we, we-, are, we were anticipating, I think we're going to be up to something like 13 million Americans with Alzheimer's in 30 or 40 years if we don't find an effective treatment or cure. Well, and I know one of the challenges facing uh, the hospital that I work at, like Catholic and healthcare facilities all across the country, and it's very pervasive in the long-term care area, and that's just staffing. And and, I, and certainly um, that's a challenge all across the, I'm sure, in this in this type of work as well in memory care. Yes, you know, it, it is. I, I, I uh, have worked in university settings. I've worked for the Alzheimer's Association. But the last 10 or 12 years, I've had my own consulting practice. And I do a lot of work with uh, companies. And the staffing issue is just literally dire. But I have to say, Jim, I, I don't think that should be an excuse for not delivering great care. You know, there's still so much we can do, even with staffing shortages, uh, to bring out the best in people with dementia. You know, music, art. Uh, make sure the staff know their social histories and life stories, doing creative and interesting activities. You know, one of the things that I really recommend is people even look at assisted living buildings. You know, are they just doing bingo and trivia every day or are they doing more interesting things like with, you know, lifelong learning? And I was at a building where one of the residents was from San Francisco and they did a whole week devoted to San Francisco history and showed them the cable car videos and you know, had fun word games about the city and had San Francisco food. And so I, I think there's still, you know, we, we, we don't want to just shut down the social model because of the medical model. We, we want to you know, build a great program. And, and one of the things I'll be talking about at the conference coming up is how you as a family member or even a staff person can, can you know, be effective, even when you don't have a lot of time or money or where there are a lot of challenges and staffing challenges. There's so much we can do to make that connection to the person with dementia and help them lead a better life. And if you're in, whether you're in a, an assisted living facility or if you're, you know, you have a parent that's just entering the memory loss state, and I know just from a personal experience, that's what, what, what totally is amazing to me is the long-term memory that people have. And is that what you're talking about, where mm-hmm. you engage, where you engage the person into where they can go back to their Hey, what was your high school like, or what was it like back when you went to experience yeah. this kind of thing? Is that what so you're talking long-term about? Long-term reminiscence are wonderful, but I'll, I'll just share a, a one-minute story. I was back at Lexington, Kentucky, where I where I did you know, my initial work at the University of Kentucky Alzheimer's Research Center, and I visited an old friend of mine who now has Alzheimer's, who was in memory care, and I was able to you know just spend a few minutes with her, maybe 20, 30 minutes, and I, I talked to her about her famous uh, baked Alaska recipe and how she volunteered with the, the priests at her local you know, Catholic church, and how she spent time in Hawaii and loved it. 
And I, I praised her and complimented her on, you know, being this amazing person, being a runner, a marathoner, you know, being the most incredible chef. And I, and I mentioned, you know, you, you threw my 30th birthday party for me. How about that? And I remember you made your, made your famous baked Alaska and just cueing people about their history, praising them, showing your emotion. We had the most delightful visit, and she just had this huge smile on her face because I, I knew some things about her, and I, I was able to draw them out. Um, giving people compliments, learning not to argue, you know, surrounding them with affection, music. Um, I'll talk about this again in my presentation, but um, I, I'm very touched and moved by Maya Angelou's famous quote that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so this idea, again, of teaching caregivers to be more emotive, share their feelings, offer affirmations, it really does help that person feel kind of safe, secure, and valued instead of you know, agitated and frustrated and fearful, which, which often people can when they have dementia. And it segues into kind of what your theme of, of your approach called the best friends approach to dementia care. And I want to get into a little bit more about that in our next segment. Maybe before we go to a break, we have about a minute or so before we have to do so. What, what, what do you mean by that? And maybe give some folks to think about over the break as, as, uh, to thought, thoughts that they can consider as we discuss that after this break. I think, Jim, basically the best friend's model of care was developed by myself and Virginia Bell at the University of Kentucky. And we, we sort of began writing about it about almost 30 years ago. And basically it suggests that there, there's really no medical treatment for dementia then or now. And, and so the treatment is creating this therapeutic healing environment. And when you have a disease that robs somebody of cognition where they don't always know where they are, what's happening around them, we encourage caregivers to kind of rethink their relationship. And, you know, how can I be a, a best friend to the person with dementia? How can I elevate them? And when we think about friendship, Jim, you know, friends are empathetic. Friends communicate a lot. Friends are warm and engaging. Friends do things together. They, they're active. They, 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 you know, they do things together. And so this idea of, you know, I, my mother may not remember even who I am anymore, but I'm going to try to be her friend or best friend and sort of surround her with this kind of affection and we've actually discovered in various models and in, in assisted living, um, you know, day centers, when you can train the staff about this more social approach to put the person before the task, actually you get better results. Uh, they're more likely to take the shower, more likely to cooperate, uh, more likely to have fewer uh, behaviors. So I think this, this technique, it sounds uh, rather altruistic, but we've actually found that when caregivers can kind of have that empathy and kind of have that aha moment, the light bulb moment that, you know, it doesn't work to argue with mom. It doesn't work to correct her. I, I need to be flexible. I can't just do the same things I've always done. They have dementia. I've got to pivot. Uh, lots of good things can happen. David Troxel is with us tonight, and he will be delivering a day-long caregiver conference expert on October 14th in Richland, 9 to 4. If you'd like to j- sign up, visit cadlick.org slash KNRC. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And if you know of someone impacted by memory loss, Alzheimer's, or dementia, 
you will want to put October 14th on your calendar. It's the time of the 11th Annual Catholic Caregiver Conference featuring caregiving expert David Troxel. It's happening October 14th from 9 to 4 at the Richland Community Center. It is free, but pre-registration is required. You can visit org slash KNRC and click on the classes to sign up. It should be a very uh, information-based, uh, lots of valuable information, especially uh, for folks that are have loved ones impacted by Alzheimer's or dementia. And David Troxel has another segment with us, and we're so grateful for your time, David. And maybe that's where I will pick it up. What is an advice? Uh, certainly it has to be pretty daunting when a, when a family gets a, a diagnosis or realizes officially that a loved one is impacted by a memory, serious memory loss? Well, certainly one thing I always recommend, which is I think a very basic thing, is to get your legal and financial affairs in order. You know, you might have, for example, a, a husband or wife or partner who is gradually going to lose that competency. So you want to you know, work hard to uh, make sure your affairs in order. Certainly learn all you can. I mean, hopefully coming to the conference uh, we have in the Tri-Cities or with the Alzheimer's Association Mayo Clinic websites. Um, definitely do your best to get a good medical evaluation. I, I know you have a lot of strength there in the Tri-Cities with Cadillac's programs, but, you know, you want to hopefully see a neurologist, a geriatrician, make sure you've had a good evaluation and workup. And then I guess my advice would be, you know, investigate community services and don't wait and wait to use services. If there's a support group that would help you, check it out, a day center, in-home, even assisted living, even if you think you'll never do that, maybe visit some and make a game plan. The average length of life after a diagnosis, Jim, is about eight years, but some people may live with this for 20 years, some it's much shorter, but it still is a slow and progressive disease typically. And so you do have time. If there's any silver lining, you have time to do some planning. The book that you have co-authored, Best Friends Approach to Alzheimer's Care, and, and you touched <laughs> a little bit about on what that approach looks like. And, and, and is it the case with folks that that, you know, some of the do's and don'ts just on how you interact with somebody, what what those entail? Sure. Well, a couple of thoughts I have just in terms of just general, you know, I'll maybe start with the area of activities. Um, I, I think boredom is the enemy when it comes to dementia. And so with this best friends philosophy, we want to you know, stay active like you would with your friends. So this can involve, you know, doing some simple chores around the house some gardening, uh, you can go through scrapbooks, organize things, take take day trips or take trips in your car. Um, music, music and song lyrics actually live in the brain longer than words and language. So music's very therapeutic. You know, get one of those Google smart speakers or Alexas and be able to play mom and dad's favorite music. So activities are very important. I would say also communication, you know, learning a lot of the do's and don'ts of communication um, one of the tricks that I often employ, if I can guess I call it a trick, but, you know, just giving people simple choices. Mom, would you like to wear the red sweater today or the blue sweater? And maybe mom always chooses the red sweater. But I think when you give someone a choice, Jim, it helps them feel uh, it feel, helps them feel like they're still in charge or in control. Even even a simple strategy like asking someone an, an opinion. Um, I used to bring my dress shirts and, and neckties to my mom and assisted living and say, Mom, I'm so bad <laughs> at this. Great. Would you help me match my shirts and ties? And she, she loved you know, being asked for help because it made her feel valued. <clears throat> Little things like this to kind of program your day can be very rewarding. 
It's it's very interesting because I think you know I, one of the tactics that I think in in our family we've learned you know it's like folding the clothes. Hey, help me fold these towels or whatever mm-hmm. that might be. It's just <clears throat> things that that yep. engage them in some fashion. A- absolutely, and you know you'll discover certain things. You know it can even be, be um, you know something around spirituality, reading uh, you know uh, um, your you know some prayers or some spiritual connection together. It can be. Um, you know, writing letters to friends, it can be organizing things, but all sorts of things can really help the person with dementia do well, even just, you know, sometimes just being with them. With my mother, my mother was Canadian, and she loved Earl Grey tea with milk, <laughs> and so just to have tea with her and, you know, have some cookies and kind of make a ritual of the teapot and reminisce and talk, that was something very delightful that she enjoyed. Are there some ways that you, sh- things that you shouldn't say? I've heard heard one of the tactics was, you know, don't say, hey, you remember Jim, or you remember this friend or that yep. friend? Is that is that true? Yes, Jim. The contemporary view of dementia, in many ways, is that people with dementia are just like the rest of us. You know, the same needs, emotions, feelings, and and I always think, you know, that if someone calls in you and you don't know the answer to a question, to me, it almost evokes the time, you know, in school when when the professor called you or the teacher called you, you didn't know the answer. Your collar tightened. You got very stressed out. And so when you say to someone with dementia, mom, do you remember my name or do you know who I am or how many children do you have? It's almost a double blow, Jim, because they they may not be able to remember and that causes them to have frustration. Uh, But even worse, in some ways, you see a person with dementia still has the present moment. They still know they should know. So they're probably saying to themselves, well, what what mother doesn't remember the name of her children? You know, what's wrong with me? So, so again, you learn things like, you know, trying to say, how is your son George? You know, is he, is he still uh, practicing law in Walla Walla versus, you know, how many children do you have and what are their names and what do they do? So these are, again, some little things you try to do to kind of help them sort of save face and maintain their dignity. And that's what you mean by this best friends approach that, again, if maybe even you're in a, a social setting where it's somebody that they used to know, that you're helping them interact and, and carry through with that conversation. Yes, exactly. And and I know even with my mother, when she had, you know, kind of early stages of dementia, you know, we'd go out to a restaurant and I could tell that the menu was perplexing to her. It was just too much. So I would say something like, oh, gosh, mother, I hear the salmon here is very good. Oh, I'll have the salmon. You know? <laughs> Again, this idea of these sort of social graces sort of helping them through is, I think, very powerful. One of my friends, in terms of, again, this sort of philosophy of trying to support dignity, her, her father is very proud. He still lives at home. He's very upset that the daughter's paying his bills, right, um, because he thinks he's fine. He doesn't know why his checkbook's been taken away, and so they have a lot of anger between them. You know, sometimes the best caregivers, Jim, become the bad guy because you're doing all these things. So so um, the, the daughter, you know, worked with me and got some ideas. And now she brings the checks in for her dad, says, Dad, would you check these for me? Would you make sure I got the accounts correct? And he kind of rifles through things. And she has him sign the check. And she says, Dad, what would I do without you? So this idea, again, of kind of, you know, saving face and all of this is, is terrific. Um, I have to say, Jim, I'm really looking forward to coming back to the Tri-Cities. I, I, you may have mentioned, but I'm a Whitman grad, you know, and uh, and I still have friends in Walla Walla and have a lot of affection for the Tri-Cities. So I'm 
I guess I guess as a benefit of liberal arts education, I certainly <laughs> did not study Alzheimer's disease and dementia at Whitman, but um, my Whitman education has really carried me a long way. Well, it's so impressive, uh, just especially, I, I guess, maybe I, I have some personal connection to it right now as we're talking, so it's a fascinating subject. And I, and I want to have you conclude, and we just have a minute or so left, but one thing is the people that are the caregivers, it's important for them to take care of themselves, too. Yes, you know, um, <clears throat> I think one in three families in the U.S. Jim are, are caregiving families these days, and caregiving can be emotionally, financially, physically very stressful. So I think any way you can to give yourself respite, give yourself a break. Um, I'll, I'll share some ideas at the conference about even family dynamics, how you work with your families. Um, but I, I think learning how to be an effective caregiver, I call it in my books something. I call it having the knack of good care, K N A C K, the you know, the art of doing difficult things with ease or clever tricks and strategies. There are things you can learn to be a more powerful and effective caregiver. Um, and, and, and I think that will help you, you know, come through this really tough time. And, and instead of Jim being, you know, angry at the world and disappointed and stressed out and, you know, like almost, you know, empty from having years of stress and strain, you might be able to come out when your family member has finally passed away or, and say, you know, I did a good job for mom. I was really there. I was effective. I did a good job. I'm kind of proud of what I accomplished. And this is kind of the modern view of how we want to you know, position dementia as it's a terrible thing. It's a difficult thing. But you, you can come out on top uh, if you pull together the right plan. Well, we're so lucky to be able to have you. October 14th, David, thanks for, so much for taking the time to be with us. David Trox will be, be presenting a day-long presentation Friday, October 14th, 9 to 4 at the Richland Community Center, the Cadillac 11th Annual Caregiver Conference. If you'd like to sign up, it's free. Visit org slash KNRC. Thanks, David. We'll talk again soon. My pleasure. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to Cadillac on Call, presented by the Cadillac Foundation. And a reminder, if you missed any part of our program, Cadillac on Call is available on podcast. Simply Google or log in to Cadillac on Call, search Cadillac on Call, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You know, the Tri-Cities is very fortunate to have very uh, generous community corporate uh, participants uh, that support organizations like the Catholic Foundation or the Tri-Cities Cancer Foundation or other nonprofit foundations in our community. And one of those companies is a Hanford contractor that's been around for a number of years, and that's Washington River Protection Solutions. And earlier this week, that company gave a very sizable financial gift to the Catholic Foundation in the amount of $15,000 in support of the great work that is being done to through donors to the Catholic Foundation. And we're very pleased to welcome Welcome uh, to our program tonight, Wes Bryan. He is the president and project manager of what's called WRPS, for short, of Washington River Protection Solutions. And Wes, thanks for taking a moment to to be with us tonight. And I I would just offer you the opportunity. Why is it important for your company to be involved in in foundations and supporting organizations like the Catholic Foundation? Well, Jim, first, I, I want to tell you thank you very much. I uh, appreciate the opportunity just to come on and share a little bit of information about our company, but more importantly, just to, 
to be able to partner with you guys in such you know the important things that you guys do. Um, you know, being being part of a, a community is a big deal, and and of course being able to partner uh, and give back to the community to those important things like the Catholic Foundation. Um, you know, is, is huge for us. You know, it, it, it brings about the, those key things uh, for health care, not only in the community, but that's a direct translation into, you know, into our workforce and, and all the important aspects that come with that. So, you know, whether it's, you know, the Catholic Foundation or United Way or the list goes on and on, you know, just being a strong supporter of the community is a key piece. And we've been very blessed with our partnerships in the community uh, since the company's been here, and we've, you know, we've been very fortunate enough to be able to donate a little over $8 million during our tenure. Well, we're very grateful for that on behalf of the Catholic Foundation and for our listeners. Some of the projects that, that donors have made possible over the years at Catholic include a neonatal intensive care unit, a pediatric floor, a variety of different equipment uh, purchases to in technology that that are used to help heal folks, and then there's a couple of other areas that are that are uh, more visible maybe to the public eye, and that's two canine security teams that have been funded through the Catholic Foundation, and really probably and and I, I want to segue into your workforce, Wes, and is uh, a lot of what's happened at Catholic I know is in the area of scholarships. Uh, there are many generous donors who contribute funds to help uh, healthcare workers pursuing their advancing their healthcare expertise and, and abilities. And the other piece, and it's, we've seen it in uh, great, great ways with, with, uh, with the COVID pandemic is just the toll that is taken on employees. And so I know one of the other areas, the foundation plays a huge role is in caregiver support. And so I know that's important for you as your people and talk a little bit about that and maybe how that connects to, to the Catholic workforce. Yeah, well, there, there's definitely a connection there. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, we, we both have important missions with what we do. Uh, and, and despite how technical or complex they may be or high hazard, at the end of the day, we can't do it if we don't have a healthy workforce that becomes a present workforce, you know, in, in the workplace. And, you know, the preventive care uh, that's, that's made available uh, and the opportunity, you know, whether it's whether it's through our 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 workforce being able to obtain the preventive care or certainly get the treatment when needed, you know, is, is just the same for you guys being able to, you know, staff your workforce, which in turn comes back to not only them being present, but in many cases, enabling them, you know, to be able to have scholarships, to be able to go get the training and certifications they need to be part of your workforce that in turn you know, service, services ours, both sharing very, you know, very important missions in what we do uh, within our respective roles, but also playing that very important role, you know, certainly to the community here in the Tri-Cities. And I know in my career here in the Tri-Cities working at Cadillac, uh, another com- connection between the workforces is many times there are spouses uh, who either maybe come out here to work at the Hanford area and they have a spouse that works in healthcare, or vice versa. So there's another connection. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and all of us, you know, certainly with everything between the pandemic and you know the effects it's had on us, whether you're whether it's part of the pandemic or it's part of the the ultimate infamous silver tsunami. You know, we, at at the Hanford site, we basically all the contractors, one Hanford contractors, are are essentially turning over our workforce right now. 
And when you go through that activity, you realize how challenging it is to, to in turn, turn around and recruit, you know, a, a new generation of workforce. And that indeed, you know, that, that recruitment process involves what you have to offer. And many times it is a, you know, a double, uh, a double working home, you know, for both the husband and wife in that scenario. And not always are they both working at the Hanford site or whatever. So it opens up other opportunities, you know, whether it's in the healthcare industry, you know, or at the Hanford site to be able to recruit um, as well as retain some of those employees. So that's a key thing for us as well. Just a minute or so left, if you would. I, give us an idea of the size of your workforce and, and what the primary mission right now of WRPS is. Yeah, sure. It um, We are about 3,000 employees. Uh, that's included subcontractors. And ultimately, uh, we are responsible uh, as the tank operations contract. And what that means uh, is we're responsible for management of about 56 million gallons of highly radioactive waste. Um, and they are stored in 158 underground tanks. So the particular waste was generated um, as as part of the production of plutonium back during the Cold War. And our ultimate mission and responsibility is not only safe storage, uh, but also manage it from the single-shell tanks into double-shell tanks and ultimately treat it for disposition, which in turn mitigates one of the most significant risks that we have to the environment, not only in this region, but it's also one of the major risks we have, you know, as a country with what with what we have at, at the Hanford site and the challenge in front of us. Well, we are grateful for your corporate support. We are grateful for your professional expertise that your company provides to this major undertaking happening out at the Hanford site. Wes Bryan, the president and project manager of Washington River Protection Solution. Thanks on behalf of Catholic to you and your team, and thank you for what you and your team do to keep us all uh, safe and protected here in the Tri-Cities. Wes Bryan with WRPS. Thanks to him, and thanks to all of our guests tonight, and thank you. We'll talk again next week.